you tell your kids to look away, but you can't stop staring at me. And so for me, it's like, I'd rather kids come and ask me questions than to look at disability as a thing to fear because they were told when they, you know, they were told not to look at me and they were told to, you know, step away. And like, I had one mom once, I was in the mall and she like had her kid and we were walking outside. And then when she realized that I was limping, she like put her kid on the other side of her, like, something was going to happen to the kid because I was limping, limping alongside of them. And I think that, that this idea that disability is this thing that people need to fear, they're passing it on to their children while also being disrespectful enough to just like stare at me with their mouths wide open. That was Kia Brown, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 141. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic answers, and I can't give you a miraculous 10-day six-step life hack plan for anything. Sorry, not sorry, (laughs) but as a recovering self-help junkie myself, I'm honestly so over that approach, and my guess is that maybe you are too. Maybe that's even why you're here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics. We talk about work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, so there's your little warning for that, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way even when it's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded. How awesome is that? And that's made possible by incredible regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is, and will always be free. But if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, my hope is that you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. When you get over to Patreon, you'll see our current funding goal. And when we reach that goal, it means that every single person who works on this show will get paid. That includes me and my sound engineer, Adam Day, as well as every single guest who comes onto the show because that's my vision, for each of our guests to be paid for the time, energy, honesty, care, and emotional labor that they bring to these conversations. The budget won't be huge to start with, and will hopefully continue to grow over time, but higher rates will always be paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. Being able to pay all of our guests has been a dream of mine for a while now, because as you've probably heard me say before, I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, then that means it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio, even if it's definitely not the norm in the podcast industry. So please know that when you help to fund this show, you're using your money as a vote for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women, and you're voting to pay those folks for the entertainment and education that they so expertly provide for us. When you support this show, you're basically just saying loudly and proudly that these voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. And as a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content. 
as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. Oh, if you think it gets vulnerable and honest on the podcast, just wait until you start getting my emails. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profits are donated to social justice organizations, such as Black Lives Matter, the Venture Out Project, and the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services. So you can feel really good about that aspect of your pledge contribution to this show as well. Over on the Patreon page, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. They seriously become something that I look forward to all the time. So once more, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Kia Brown. Kia is a journalist, freelance writer, and the creator of the disabled and cute hashtag. Her work has appeared in Teen Vogue, Essence.com, Catapult, Glamour Magazine, Harper's Bazaar, and Lenny Letter, among other publications. And her debut essay collection, entitled The Pretty One, is forthcoming from Atria Books. In this episode, Kia talks about the book she's currently working on and what it took to complete the first draft. She shares the importance of making time to celebrate small wins, her struggles with saying no to things, the importance of financial compensation for creative work, and tons more. We talk about the power of reclamation and how Kia is reclaiming her body and all aspects of her identity. She shares the practical side of learning how to like yourself, what she wishes parents taught their children about people with disabilities, and how it feels to finally love and accept her unruly body. I absolutely adore Kia, and having her back on the show was such a blast. I hope that you love listening in too. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at nicoleantoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Kia, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. I'm so excited. Me too. I want you to set the scene for us. Tell me where you're sitting, what you're looking at, what you're drinking, what's going on in your real life right now, where you are. Well, I am sitting in my room um, on my bed in front of my computer, as one does, and I'm staring at my favorite extra long dusty pink jacket that's hanging up in front of my closet, not in my closet because I ran out of room. And I'm not drinking anything, but I do love those clear American golden peach waters that you can get at Walmart for like 68 cents. Like I'm open to be a sponsor or like not a sponsor, a spokeswoman for them if they're interested. And, um, you know, I just those are the things that I love to drink. But right now I'm looking at my computer and a dusty pink jacket that I really, really love. But it's too hot out for me to wear it right now. So. I'm bringing it back out in the fall. So get ready for that. <laughs> so in the fall and the winter, you get to wear it. And in the summer, you just get to look at it. <laughs> yes. 
Absolutely. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, it's funny when I'm recording, I always ask people this question because obviously, you know, we're recording just audio only, not video. And I find that I'm so curious about other people's setups. Like I'm in my home office at my desk, but I have a big window that's in front of me and I have to keep the blinds closed because I'm so distractible that, you know, someone walks by, the UPS truck pulls up, someone's walking their dog and I just, I feel like I like lose focus. So I'm almost in like a sensory deprivation bubble of like, close my eyes, <laughs> listen to someone, don't look out the window. <laughs> <laughs> I'm that same way too. That's why I'm always like, all right, if I have to do something, I can't do it in front of the TV because I'll stop and watch TV. So I always like come in my room and turn my TV off. And I'm just like, all right, no, let's focus. Cause otherwise literally anything, any sort of like motion. I'm just like, what, what's happening? Cause I'm nosy. I'm naturally nosy. And so that's what happens. When you're a very nosy person, you're like, all right, I'm distracted by, like, someone walking around or, like, moving in my eye line. Yeah. So I'm curious then about your sort of work process or writing process. Are you someone who listens to music? Do you work well at coffee shops? How do you handle that? I have to listen to music. Um, For me, like... Music is such a big part of my life. I know that that's very cheesy, but for me to write, I need to listen to music. Like for the book, I made a playlist to write to while I work specifically on the book. I think it has like um, a ton of songs. Like I can't even think of the number. I'm going to look right now. Um, But for me to write, I have to do it to music. I can't do it to TV shows or movies. Okay, it has 341 songs, which, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which <laughs> I had to look, it was going to bother me. Um, I have to write to music. I can't do it to TV shows or movies because like, for me, I want to I watch them. But with music, I don't have to watch it. I can just hear it, you know, love it, live it, learn it. But then I often find that sometimes I'll catch myself like typing and then I'll sing the lyric out loud and end up writing it down and then I have to go back and erase it but it doesn't happen often it's just um it happened a lot when I was writing like the last couple essays of the book I'd be like wait a minute (laughs) those are lyrics like the next set of lyrics to the song you're listening to not what you want to say while you're writing but yeah no I can't do the whole silent writing thing that's yeah that see this is why i ask because it's so interesting i almost have to have silence i have a very hard time working from places that aren't home because mm-hmm. of that exact thing like it's either the lyrics or i get too caught up in it or something i've i found a couple of songs that either don't have lyrics or i don't really know them or they're in another language where if i listen to those couple of songs on repeat that will do it but i've heard of people doing stuff like that where they put together playlists where it's not necessarily songs that they know with lyrics that they know to work to to sort of like get in the zone and it almost becomes like a like Pavlovian okay I hear these songs it's time to write kind of like cue which is of interest to me so I don't know I'm just always interested to hear about other people's process that's so interesting that people curate songs to where like with with words they don't know because I'm the exact opposite every every song on my playlist I know all the words too because I feel like 
I don't know, they just bring me so much joy that, like, having that extra set of joy while I'm writing, even about, like, really tough stuff, I'm like, yes, this is it. And so, like, I'll sing along, hit a couple verses, and then go back to typing, and type, 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 sing a verse, type, 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 sing a verse. So, like, for me, I don't know, I could, I could never do the music without the lyrics or songs I don't know the words to, because I feel like then it would just be a, a whole different experience, and then I would be too focused on trying to remember um, the lyrics of the songs instead of just knowing them and not being like distracted by the fact that I don't know them um, for me to write. So like, I have songs from like the '90s on here. I have a bunch of Hilary Duff songs. Um, like, it's just a wide range of music of like random songs that I loved at one point or another, or remind me at some point of like what the book, what the book and the stories that I'm trying to tell in the book, um, kind of remind me of different sections of time in my life I mean, yeah because mu- music is music is so nostalgic right you hear a song and it immediately puts you back and like oh my god I was at ninth grade in this party or you know whatever yeah yeah when I loved this yellow top so much and I don't remember why yeah I mean if we're completely honest most of my music nostalgia has to do with people that I had crushes on or something like Same. that like I hear the song and I'm like oh my god I loved Jason so much <laughs> <laughs> No, same. It's like you, I feel like so many of the, the songs from like, you know, high school and middle school are like, I used to think about this boy when I when I heard this song. And I used to to, 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 to write our names together when I heard this song and blah, 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 blah. It's nice. Because even though you're like, I don't even know what that person is doing now. You're like, I remember that feeling. And mm-hmm. so like, that's what I think is so powerful about music in particular is that like, it helps you remember a feeling whether it's a good one or a bad one but it's like it'll get you there faster than most anything else yeah which makes sense given that you're the genre that you're writing is memoir that's so funny I didn't think about it that way so okay so when we when you were first on the show and we first talked I think if I'm getting the timing right you had just gotten your book deal and I would love for you to talk about what's happened between then and now with the process of your book Sure. Um, so the book is The Pretty One, out next year via Adria Books. Plug. Um, and right now, I just, Sunday, I just finished the first draft of the book. So the first draft is done. It's off to my editor to read, and then he'll send me back edits, and then we'll do those edits, and there'll be another round of edits, and then one more round of edits, and then it'll go to the printer, I think. And then... I don't know what happens after that. I mean, I guess they publish it. So (laughs) this is what happens. But right now I'm in the, I just finished all of the essays and sent them off. And I just sat there for a minute afterward. And I was like, we just wrote an entire book, girl. Even if it's going through a completely different, like a completely like set of edits and it'll go through and it won't be the exact same thing that it is now. Like I literally just sat there and I was like, we wrote an entire book. Like, let's just sit with that. So basically after I did that, I watched Sensate, the finale, um, the series finale, which I'm really sad because I really wanted more seasons. And I just sat there and I like celebrated it because so often I'm just like, do I have time to stop and celebrate this? But I was like, nope, I'm taking the day off. No one touch me, talk to me or anything. I just want to sit here and watch TV and drink a Seagram's with a bunch of sugar in it. Congratulations on hitting that milestone. It's really, yeah, I think you're right about making sure that we give ourselves sort of time and permission to celebrate things along the way. I think it's really easy to just be like, okay, well, what's next? But no, what you (laughs) did, yeah, you wrote, you wrote a whole book. (laughs) 
<laughs> I literally was like, we wrote that entire thing, girl. Like, me and these 341 songs. Yeah. Like, we wrote, we wrote a book. And, like, I think it's so funny because um, one of my friends was like, don't you want to say something, like, after it's, like, fully done? And I was like, no. Because to me, the very first draft is as important as the very last one. So I just was like, all right, I'm going to take the time to post about it on social media. I was just like, I finished my, I finished the first half of my book with like a Serena Williams gif of her like celebrating a win. And I was just like, all right, I'm doing this. Like, it's fine. I don't want to wait to be like, oh, it's perfect. Now I can talk to you about it. Like for me, a lot of my like book writing process is me just being honest. Like I would talk about how hard it was a couple, like for some, at some point and, and how, you know, I had a good writing day or a bad writing day. And I have a, uh, Instagram story on my Instagram, obviously, and it's called the pretty one. And it's just it literally chronologicalizes, or is that the right word? I think I said it wrong, but it it like showcases every single piece of um, point that I wrote the book. You know, you see little snippets or just hey, I'm writing today, and so I went back after I finished and put the last um, piece of the story in. To be like, this is so many weeks you spent writing this book, and now you're at the end. Like, I literally watched it like it was a movie, because um, it was just a place for me to curate this moment in time where I wrote my very first book. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like, for me, I'm very, like, into, like, you know, making sure that I document these things, because I don't want to ever lose this feeling of excitement about it. So for folks who might not be familiar with your work or who didn't hear your first episode, can you give a little summary about um, just what the book's about? Sure. Um, The Pretty One is a collection of essays, and it's about disability and blackness and and womanhood and pop culture and kind of how I live and navigate in the world as a disabled black woman when the world is very white-centric, able-body-centric, and just kind of ableist in nature so a lot of what i the the book is going to cover a bunch of stuff so it's going to talk about loss and grief and joy and music and cheesecake and pop culture and you know my family and friends so it covers the gamut it's not just the it's not a sob story um and there's nobody that dies at the end of this collection that's disabled because i think so often our stories for disabled people especially disabled people of color it's about tragedy and death. And, like, I've, I've had tragedy and death in my life, and I do talk about those things, but there's also joy, too, and I just wanted to show people the other side of, of disability. It's not all doom and gloom, and we don't all hate ourselves all the time, but also how we deserve the right to a full spectrum um, of emotion as human beings that we don't often get because if we're sad then we're too sad and we're a burden. If we're happy, people don't understand why we're happy because we should be sad because we're burdens. And so for me, it was like, all right, I just want to show the world, you know, these essays. And I want to show the world myself and how I got from that sad place to the other side. But how I also recognized that it wasn't easy. And just kind of, it's essentially my journey from being a really sad and depressed young girl to a really happy and proud woman. And I hope that people take something, whether they're disabled or not, from this book and they understand that their worth is 
inherent and they don't have to do anything special to be worthy of a life that they enjoy living. I'm going to be first in line to pre-order this book. I'm really excited. Thank you. I'm so excited for it to be out in the world too, but I'm really, um, I'm just kind of trying to take it piece by piece because I'm trying not to rush the process. I'm like, so everything well said, will happen yeah. when it's supposed to, but I'm like, yeah, I can't wait for it to one day be in the world. Like, I know that I'm already going to cry if I, like, go into a bookstore and see my book. And I'm just going to start weeping. And the, the people at the, like, bookstore are going to be like, why are you crying so hard? What's going on? Are you okay? And I'm like, that's my book right there on a shelf. You see it? It's right there. Here's my face. Like, I'm just going to be, like, I know I'm, deep down I'm going to be obnoxious about it. But just because I'm going to be so emotional. Because it's a dream come true for me. Like, I never, I've always wanted to write books, but I never in my wildest dreams thought it was actually possible. And so now anything feels possible for me. And I'm just so excited all the time. That's such a good feeling that you're speaking to of this idea when you do something, whatever it might be, that you originally thought was either too far outside your comfort zone or not realistic for any number of either real or imagined reasons, right? The stories that we tell ourselves about why we can't have or do certain things. And then as soon as you do one thing that sort of is on that list, I feel like it cracks open the possibility of, okay, well, if I didn't think this thing was possible and it is, what about these other 50 things that I told myself that I couldn't do? Maybe I I could do those too. There's like a, like a shift in perspective or a reorientation that I find happens with that kind of stuff. It happened to me when I ran my first half marathon. It happened to me when I got sober that I'm like, oh, I didn't think it was possible to have fun without drinking. And actually it is. So like, oh shit, like what if all these other things are possible, you know? Yeah, literally. I feel like I feel like doing one big thing that you never thought was possible opens up your world. And so then you start dreaming bigger and who knows, you know, what could happen from here. Uh, I hope that there's like, you know, another book in the works. I wanted. I want to write a cross genre. That's my jam. Like I want to write nonfiction, um, poetry, and fiction. So I want to do for my next book that hopefully that somebody would one day want to buy. I want it to be fiction because I don't want people to think, oh, she's just a disability writer because I'm not. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm. I'm a writer. Period. I write about disability. Yes, sure. But I also write about a bunch of different things, and so I get really excited when I get asked to do freelance things that have nothing to do with disability. Like when I interviewed Roxanne Gay for Harper's Bazaar, um, Lillian Rivera for The Rumpus. Like I just really like when people trust me enough to be able to do something that's outside of me talking about my body. And I know that that's funny to say as I just wrote an entire book that dealt with in part about my body, but it's just, it's nice because I feel like the world is opening up for me in a way that I never thought was possible. And people are like, okay, if she has this to say about disability, what does she have to say about pop culture or Paramore or um, Demi Lovato or just life in general? And so I'm really excited about opening up the world to what it's like to be a disabled black woman in America, but also opening up a world to understand who I am as a person with and without my disability, with, you know, the world at large. I just want people to see more of me, but also understand that um, I'm more than just what they see on the outside. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly important point that it's like you said, really 
important, I just, I mean, I'm just going to keep using the word important, I guess, like important to you to tell the truth about the stories of your life, which obviously in a lot of the writing that you've done has focused around disability, which we've talked about and that that's important. And also that you're not one dimensional. And so it's like this, like, I feel like it's so important to push back against the ways that I don't know, culture society wants to compartmentalize or categorize us or makes someone only be one thing when there's so much like that one thing can be true and can be really like deeply rooted part of who they are and also that they have plenty of other stuff to talk about like I love when you said that you're a writer period you're not a disability writer you're not you know like in this tiny niche there's so many other things also and I think that that's that's really I think relatable for a lot of folks and empowering to hear you being like no I'm going to take ownership of sort of the identity of who I am and who I am as a writer and not let someone else sort of decide what that looks like Absolutely. I talk a lot about, like, not wanting to be pigeonholed. And so, like, I work my ass off to make sure that, like, I'm writing across genre. I'm writing whatever I want to write, whether it's about disability or not, so that people can't be like, oh, she's just a disability writer. Like, when when she's done, you know, writing about disability, what is she going to do? Like, you're going to see what I can do while I'm writing about disability, because I can do both. Because for me, my work... Um, my fiction work and my poetry work and the work, you know, when I'm doing interviews as a journalist or writing about TV shows, that's just as important to me as my disability work. One does not outweigh the other. I love them both. And so for me, it's like, I'm going to do what I want. And I feel like I'm at a place now where like, I have enough, um, I have enough material and article and publications to back my, you know, to back it up. I'm good at what I do. And I know that that sounds, you know, we, we don't say that because it sounds so um, conceited, but I know that I'm good at what I do. And it's not that somebody else is bad at what they do, but it's just like, I'm telling you that I'm good at what I do so that you know um, what you get when you come to me to write something for you. Yeah, I don't, gonna, I, I think that's not, I think that we sh- should be definitely, I mean, especially as women, like more confident about those kind of things. Like hearing you say that, I'm like, hell yeah, you're good at what you do. Like own that. Why do we want this sort of where you have to be so like, oh no, self-deprecating, right? Like that being confident in what you do does not mean that you're not humble or not, you know, like any of these other things also. Exactly. Like I know for me, it's like, I know that I've gotten to where I am today because I work hard also with a little luck and support from a, from a really big village of people who give a damn about whether or not I succeed and who I am as a person and a writer. But I also know, like I said, I've worked hard for what I have. And so for me, it's like I'm done playing that down and letting people just decide who I am as a writer because I have a bit of visibility. Um, no, I'm not doing that. Like, psh- it's too no I've worked way too hard to just let people be like oh she's this and she's that no I'm everything thank you for asking (laughs) you know I don't know that's just that's my thing for 2018 it's just me being like whatever I I'm doing what I want to do and I'm very lucky and I'm very fortunate that people care about the things that I'm doing like my writing and tweets and like the book people are so excited about the book and that that to me is just amazing I never thought that would be possible either but I'm also much more confident in the work like writing a book makes you much more confident in the work that you have outside of it because even when I had like doubts about like whether or not, and I still do like whether or not people will like the book like that. There's that very real fear there, but writing the book made me be like, okay, 
if you can write for Harper's Bazaar, ESPN, um, Teen Vogue, Catapult, Lenny Letter, all these places that people love, you can do this. You can write this book. And so for me, it's just like, all right, sometimes you have to gas yourself because nobody else is going to. And you have to remember that, like, you don't have to follow anybody else's journey. You just have to remain on your own and, and stay in your lane because there's no traffic and you just have to keep pushing. And I think for me, that's writing the book taught me that uh, more so and allowed me to believe it more so mm-hmm. than anything else because I'm just like, obviously somebody saw something in you if you sold the book. It's not an easy thing to do. So I just had to really keep reminding myself of my worth. Yeah. And I also think that it's helpful what you just said, that it's a both and just because you're confident and you know that you're good at what you do and that you work really hard doesn't mean that you don't have self-doubt. I feel like sometimes we think of these as like binary states where like either you're confident, you know, full stop, or you're so wrecked with self-doubt, you know, that you can't do anything. And I think sometimes either one of those might be true, but I also think those like polar ends of the spectrum are usually not people's experience. It's usually a combination of both. Like you can at the, in the very same moment, know that you're good at what you do and that, you know, these publications have paid you and that you did sell a book. And also you could be like, Oh shit, is anyone going to like this? Like that, that both of those are real. And I think pretending otherwise is not helpful. So it's, I think it's great to hear you speak to that. Exactly. I'm a very, like I always say, like I'm a very, I'm confident, but I also have fears and I worry about these sorts of things. And I know you're not really supposed to in the writing process because for me, it's like at the end of the day, I just want to write a a book that I think is good, that I'm proud of. But I also want people to like it. I don't, I'm not going to lie and be like, oh, I don't, I don't care if anybody likes it because I do. I care very much. I want people to like it. Um, So it's just a, it's a, I feel like that's what happens when you're a multifaceted human being. Is you, you can feel two things at once mm-hmm. and know them both to be true. Absolutely. So I'd love to dig into a couple of the stories from the book. Um, will you share what was maybe the most fun story to write or the most fun part of the book for you to work on so far? Sure. Uh, the funnest essay is funnest the word. The most exciting essay for me to work on was is a essay called can we sit for a sec and i talk about chairs and um places to sit when i need rest but it's so like i think it's funny i think you should always have to laugh at your own jokes but i think that it's i think that it's hilarious i love that essay so much and then i wrote one um which is essentially just a love letter to music those that one was really hard to write, but it was so fun. And, and the, the one about chairs, um, the toughest ones were the last three. Um, I don't want to tell you why, but they were just really tough. And um, I'm glad I got through them. And I hope that people enjoy them. Because I think each of, these, each of these essays really means something to me. You know, I didn't want to just write something to write something. I wanted each of these essays to have a, a very deep place in my heart. So I sat down with my... Um, my literary agent, Alex Slater of Trident Media, shout out. And I was like, I want to make sure that these essays mean something. I don't want to just write something to write something. I don't want people to be like, oh, she's just writing this because she needs to fill pages. So each essay in the collection means something to me for a different reason. And so I had fun writing each of them, even the hard ones, because I was like, these are the stories that you want to tell. Nobody's forcing you to tell a certain story. Nobody's like, you should write about this. You should write about that. My team was like, 
hey girl, write what you want to write and we're here to support you. And so that's what I did. So for me, writing the entire thing was fun, even the hard ones, because I was like, this is still a dream come true. Like, look at what you get to do. Mm-hmm. And What's something specific that you feel like you either learned about yourself or that you were able to get some clarity on through the process of like reinvestigating and writing about your life for this book? Um, well, that's a fantastic question. I, I learned that like, I've been through a lot. Um, and I say that because when you're, when you're in it, you always try to kind of diminish it. You're like, you know what, what you're feeling is, is, is not as, you don't have it as bad as other people. So you didn't really, you know what I mean? So you don't, you're like, I didn't have it as bad as other people, so I shouldn't be complaining. But like, the truth is, I've been through a lot. And I think writing about it helped me realize that, um, that I've been through a lot, but also like, you know, I've come out on the other side. And I think that's a feat to be celebrated, especially when you read the book and you see what I've gone through and you're like, okay, yes. I see why she's so like celebratory because... You know, it was a really tough road for me um, at, at different points in my life. And I and I think looking back at it, I'm just like, wow, you survived that. Then you can survive anything. Um, and so I guess the biggest thing that I learned about myself is that I'm resilient in a way that I never thought I was positive. I was like, oh, I'm just, you know, going with the motions, going with the flow, just not really sure what I'm doing. But I really do. I think now I know that, like, I was resilient and I got through those things because I was supposed to get through them. And it was hard and complicated and messy, but I got through them. And so for me, it was just like I fell in love with myself, who I am now. But I also grew to understand and kind of um, feel for the person that I was. Because so, because when I sat down to write the book, I was like, oh, you know, I have to tell so many things about this person that I was, and I'm not this person anymore. And I just kept wanting to reiterate that. But I think the person that I was really tried her best, but she just didn't know how to navigate the world and her body. And she was just so desperate to be free of that. And so I had to, writing the book really helped me be like, all right, girl, like, I'm sorry that, you know, I was so harsh to you once I got to the other side because I see how hard it was for you to be who you are um, when we first, you know, when you first got on earth and then, you know, that, that time period, now that I'm on the other side of it and I'm really happy and I love myself, it's like I have more empathy for the person that I was. Yeah, I think that's so beautifully said. This idea of like having more compassion and tenderness for your past self or younger self, especially if that self was going through particularly hard things. I think I know obviously this isn't the same, but I think about this a lot when I think of like the before and after for me of quitting drinking. And there was so mm-hmm. long, anytime you talk about being on the other side of something, I think there's a really common and easy to fall into tendency to sort of demonize our past self or talk down to our past self, kind of this like old me, new me narrative, right? That like Mm -hmm. we almost need to do that in order to measure progress or measure change. And I think it's actually not that helpful to do that. And so hearing you speak about, okay, I'm on the other side with a lot of how I feel about myself and what I believe and, you know, understanding my resiliency, but that doesn't mean that in order for that to be true, that you have to make the, the, you know, former version version of yourself wrong or bad in order to know that you've changed. I think there's something beautiful about being able to be like, well, that was all me. This is just where I'm at in that journey and not have it be this like really stark. Well, I used to treat myself like shit. And now that, you know what I mean? Like that it's, it's, it's nice to see some more 
I don't know, like grace in that. And I think you're speaking to that really well. Thank you. Yeah. I just, I, I remember being so angry um, with my past self and being like, we wasted so many years, but I think it's not that the years were wasted. I think it's not. Now I think that it's just those years were those years because they were supposed to be. So all that stuff that happened, what happened because it was supposed to. And if I wasn't the person that I was, I wouldn't be who I am today. And so that's what I have to constantly remind myself, you know, even as I go through this process and, and when eventually the book gets out into the world and I'm answering questions about it and, and, you know, moments in the book where I do X, Y, and Z thing, I have to remind myself like, this version of me isn't the enemy. She's just a person who was lost and scared and and angry. And that's fine because even though I'm not that person now, I was. And so that person should, should have as much love um, from me as I give my current self. Yeah, I also think that it's a little bit too easy to look back and be like, oh, well, I should have done X, Y, or Z thing differently. But I mean, we're looking back with sort of the tools and coping mechanisms and clarity and stuff that we have now, but we didn't have those things then. So it's like I love what you said before about, well, we do we do the best that we can when we can with what we have. And then like, mm-hmm. as you learn more, then you do differently, you do better. It's so easy for me to look back and be like, well, 10 years ago, I should have, you know, done this instead of that. Okay, well, but I couldn't have done that then. So yeah, because <laughs> you know. I didn't know exactly. So writing this book has obviously been a priority for you, which makes me want to ask, um, I don't know, given the fact that we can't do all the things at the same time, how do you choose your priorities? Like, what does it look like in your real life to have a priority? Sort of, I guess, or I guess specifically to this book, what else got moved around in order to make this a priority or anything in that that you want to talk about? Um, a lot of things I moved around and I had to do a lot of emails asking for extensions because I, I have a really tough time saying no. Like, really... Like, a re- like, I'm like, oh, you have to say no. Like, I can tell people, like, you know, don't overfill your plate or, like, don't, not, don't like, put too many things on your plate for you to do at once. Um, and I can say that to other people and mean it, but I can, I have such a hard time saying no. So a lot of it was, like, me emailing people asking for extensions because um, the dates that I thought I could have something done by just weren't working. And so a lot of it was just me humbling myself and being like, hey... I know that I hate to turn in things later than I say I'm going to turn them in, but I have to do it. And that was just a lot of freelance pieces, like other essays and, you know, stuff that I signed on to do previously before I even got the book deal or just after I got the book deal um, was me just like, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And then realizing that, like, okay, um, Kia, we signed up for so much stuff and you're writing a book. So I was like, now I understand why people take breaks on other things entirely to write the book. I mean, I got the book done, and I think that the book is good. Don't get me wrong. I just noticed that, like, I should have done less things while I was writing it, because I was like, I already said yes to these things, so I can't go back and say no. And so, in the beginning, I was like, I can't ask for extensions, because I don't want it to look bad. But, um, I ended up asking for extensions for the things that I really needed to ask for. And people were so kind and so understanding because they were like, you're writing a book. Like, it's fine. We can hold off on X, Y, and Z thing. Mm-hmm. And um, you'll be okay. It doesn't mean that you're a terrible person because you need an extension on something. 
Well, yeah, I also think there's something that's empowering and necessary about recognizing what our own limits are, right? Like, we can't do all the things at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, like, even though you want to be like, I can do it all. You know, I'm a superwoman. But, like, we can't be all the time. And I think that that's, we have to know our limits, I think. And I'm slowly finding mine. Um, It's just me being like, all right it's okay to say no to this thing. And it's hard too, because the, the more um, opportunities you get, sometimes you have to say no to the things that you really want to do, but you just don't have the time to do it. Um, and I think that's, that's been a learning curve for me because so often it was like, I have to say yes to everything because I want to get my foot in the door and I, I can't afford to say no. But now it's like, I can't, I, I can't say yes to everything because I'm so busy and busy is a blessing, but I can't say yes to, to everything that, you know, people ask of me because I have other things that like I have to do mm-hmm. that will, you know, feed my soul, but also in, like advance my career in the long run versus the thing that like I want to do, but like, I just don't have the time for what is it about, like, at the heart of saying no that's hard for you? Is it that you don't want to let people down? Like, what would you attribute that to, that it's hard for you to say no? That's absolutely it. I don't want to let people down. I don't want people to think that I'm a stuck-up snob just because I have, you know, visibility and a blue check mark on Twitter. I don't want people to, I don't want my saying no to affect how people view me, but it does, and I have to live with that. Um, because I have found that some people get really angry when you say no and you have to remember that like not everybody's gonna like you because you for whatever reason but you have to still wake up every day knowing that you made the choice that you were supposed to make and that you had to make for your well-being um i find that a lot of people are like why can't you do this thing for this small um you know publication and like why do you always need to be paid for the things that you do and I'm like I don't always need to be paid for the things that I do but I have to prioritize what I say yes and no to because I do have bills to pay and though I appreciate you know your gratitude or or this this I got an email the other day that was um like we can give you exposure and I'm like not to be you know like not to brag but I have 12 point six thousand followers on twitter like i don't need your specific exposure i need some sort of you know if not payment then just some sort of way that this will help me in the long run not just help you get your readership up or your a hundred percent yeah there's i i mean i think okay so this is an interesting conversation I, I mean i love talking about money basically it's like one of my favorite things to talk about it's something that i've been thinking about a lot just even in terms of this show of you know because starting obviously now to pay podcast guests and like working towards being able to you know pay higher rates and do all of that like that's something that i've really never seen done people paying podcast guests and it's always like people really obviously don't. You don't. You don't see it. And I mean, I get it. No one's like you're certainly no one's forced to come on a podcast. There is the exposure thing. And I have heard from past clients like very real conversions of people got clients, you know, they sold their book, you know, they got whatever things happen from being on this show or being on other shows. There's other reasons to say yes to it. But exactly to your point, like there is no substitute for money. And for me, I'm like, if that's the kind of world that I want to live in, where especially creative work gets financially compensated, you know, people's time, energy, emotional labor to come and have 
like these kinds of honest conversations, I'm like, fuck, I want to pay people for that. Right. And so I I don't know. I, I like what you're speaking to just about, yeah, that money does matter. It's not everything, but it's real. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's not about podcasts. Like, podcasts, I'll do for, like, I shouldn't say this, but I just love podcasts, so I'll do them whenever anybody asks, mostly. Except for this one person who wanted me to, it was like a conservative podcast, and they wanted me to come on and, like, argue why I thought that, like, disabled people and people of color deserved rights and argue our humanity. And I was like, no, absolutely (laughs) not. I'm good. Thank you. But um, for me, right, for me, that's more or less, like, writing um, stuff. So somebody would be like, oh, can you write this thing that's, you know, 3,000 words for free? Or can you <clears throat> can you write this thing that's 2,500 words for free? And I have written for free. And I will write for free for things that I believe in. But I feel like for me, it's like when I know that you can pay, but you're essentially lowballing me because you think that I'm just going to say yes to everything you ask me to do, that's when I run into a problem. Because um, I think For me, it's like, I want to make sure that, like, if I write for free, it's something, like I said, that I believe in and something that I care about and want to see succeed. But I also feel like if you can pay people, why not pay people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know what I mean? Especially like like the the places that, you know, have an established, um, like, established amount of, of, like, credibility to pay people. Like, when I first started... I did everything for free, pretty much. I mean, I was writing constantly for no money at all. You know, 2,000, 3,000 words. Um, and, and the turnaround was so quick. And I was just constantly writing because I was like, it's going to get my foot in the door. And I, and I can't say no. And so for me, it's like finally being in a place where people know who I am enough for me to be like, all right, I think I deserve compensation for this in some way. So it doesn't have to automatically be money but maybe if if i'm traveling somewhere pay for my travel if you know what i mean like like there should be some sort of incentive for someone to want to be a part of whatever it is that you're doing whether it is like okay if i talk to this person you know hopefully it'll help me sell my book or hopefully it'll help me you know get in contact with other people but i find so often it's like okay it'll be these people reaching out to me to do something that like takes a lot of time and then getting angry when I say, Hey, you know, if this takes time, I need something to come from it. You know what I mean? And a lot of it is like a lot of young writers. I try, I really do try to reach my hand down and and lift somebody else up. But I find that like a lot of writers get really angry when they send me like 10, 12 really long questions and I send them back like my consulting fee or I'll be like, you know what? you can send me this and I'll answer this, these questions. They're like, no, because why would you do that? Why? We just want to ask questions, but it's like, you have to remember that the person, whether or not they have visibility. So like, yes, I'm a blue check mark on Twitter and a lot of followers, but I'm a human being at the end and the beginning of the day. And so I can only spend my time doing so much free labor before I'm like, crap, I need to do, I need to pay a bill. I need to, to save up, I need to do this X, Y, and Z, and money is the way to do that. But I do think that there is a place for things that you can do for free, like, you know, things that are mutually beneficial, but I think the, the important part of it is it being both mutually beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two things that came up for me when you were saying that. With the um, 
the types of requests. Yeah. Like, oh, can you just answer this question? Or can you just like write this one quick thing? Like people only think oftentimes about um, how small they see their request being without taking into consideration that your inbox might be full of like 200 of those same requests, right? That it's not like, that's not the only request that you're getting. And so it's like, I think about the sort of taking on the responsibility when you are the person that is requesting, right? You know, you want to pick someone's brain, you want to ask questions, like, offer to pay for their time or ask one specific question or ask it on Twitter so that the answer can be publicly useful for other people. It's like thinking through the fact that, you know, your entire life is not just sitting at your computer, like doing labor for free, (laughs) first of all. And then the other thing I thought of when you were talking a couple years ago, um, I went to a small kind of writing and creativity workshop that Elizabeth Gilbert taught, and she was talking about the sort of setting boundaries and saying no thing. And one of the things that she said that I'm, I'm sure I've mentioned on the podcast before, because I think about it all the time, she was like, you know, the myth about setting boundaries is this idea that people will respect you for like setting limits and saying no. And she was like, fuck no, people want you to say yes to their thing. They're going to be upset when you say no to their thing. And also you still have to do it because otherwise your most important stuff isn't going to get done. Like if you don't prioritize your priorities, no one else is going to to prioritize them. And I think about that all the time. This idea that like, sure, you know, it's nice to think people are going to be so impressed and respectful about you setting boundaries. But at the end of the day, like they want you to say yes to their thing. <laughs> you know, they do. They do. And it's not like I blame them because I remember I I was a young writer once too. I'm saying like, I'm really old, but like, I, I remember wanting to be um, so, so desperately to understand what it was like to get into the industry. So for me, it's like I answer as many as I can, you know, but after a certain number of, um, like I'll answer, often I'll answer the first four or five for free. These are like, I'm talking about long winded questions, like with multiple steps to them. I'll answer the first four or five for free. But after that, I need something, you know what I mean? Because I think that people really just think that you're there to, I don't want to trash on young writers because I really, I get it. It's just... After the first four or five, I'm like, all right, this is taking up so much time, and I do have other things I have to do. So if you want me to, um, if you want me to continue helping you or or guiding you in that way, I need something, you know, from you. But it's not always. Sometimes, you know, I will stop and answer, you know, a bunch of questions from email. You just have to catch me on the right day, I guess. And I and I feel like I have to keep saying it with caveats because I don't want people to, again, to think that I'm like a shitty, mean, terrible, like, you know, stuck up person. I You're do not. absolutely. Don't worry. Thank you. <laughs> I do absolutely help people. I just, I think that at some point you have to think about how busy, you know, even with my little bit of visibility, writers can be. Um, so it's not just your request. Like you said, it's 16 others plus essays and, and poems and, and other things. And it's like, like I said, busy is a blessing, but you have to understand that you are not the first person or the last person to ask someone questions about editors and, and who did you pitch this thing to and how did you get that job? And some of it is so steeped in like, there's this kind of like undertone, like, how did you get, how did you of all people get this thing? How did you, um, how did you secure that? How did, like, how did that happen? Like, if you could do it, I could do it. But it's like, it takes a lot of work. It's not just about getting the name of a contact. Like, you have to actually put in the work to pitch and, and, and um, you know, make sure you find the right publication for the thing that you want to write. Because it's so important for people to read publications before they send in whatever it is that they want to send in so they can get a feel for what um, 
for what it takes to be in that publication as a writer. Sure. And so for me, it's like, I just remind people, there's a lot of research and work that you have to do that goes into being a writer. And so you have to make sure that you want to do that instead of emailing whatever first person you can find with a couple bylines to do the work for you. Totally, totally. That Yeah, I think I think that's the underscoring point. Like, I, I don't think at all that you're coming off as mean or a snobby or that you don't want to help people. Like, believe me, you know, like, I get it. And I think everyone listening gets it. It's, I think, the, like, sort of great takeaway for me with what we're talking about is this idea of just taking on the burden of responsibility more when you are the question asker. That, like, it takes, you know, maybe five minutes to fire off an email that includes a lot of questions that it's going to take someone an hour to answer, right? So just, like, being aware of sort of the discrepancies in that, um, you know, I think, I think is important. Um, but while we're talking about money, actually, um, a question that I would love to ask you, cause I think this is sort of a misconception that people have, or maybe just something that people aren't familiar with about book deals. Can you talk about like the, the financial side of book deals, like how it's structured sort of when payouts happen, anything in that, I think people would be interested to hear about. Sure. Um, People really do believe that once you get a book deal, it's just money, 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 money yeah. all day. But it's not. Because while you're writing the book, if you're broke, you're just broken writing a book. Which, hello, huh? you don't really get, you don't see. So if you have an advance, you get, you usually get it in three parts. So the first part is when you sign the contract, right? So then the second part is when the full manuscript is done. Like in full, no edits, no breaks, Right. So that's the, and then the third is when you, is when the day that the book comes out, but it's not necessarily the day that the book comes out. So you, so say you sign your, say you sign your book on a Tuesday, right? It could take up to two weeks for you to get that first signing bonus because it has to go through all the proper channels. Then you got to check in the mail or however it is that you want to, um, like however it is that you choose to receive the money, you don't get it right away. It's not like the money's waiting there in a stack next to you while you sign your book papers. Um, so I think that people have this this like misconception that as soon as you sign a book deal, you just have money coming out the wazoo. You don't. You get your advance in three parts, big or little. Like no matter how big the advance is or little is, you get it in three parts. Once when you sign. Once when you hand in the full manuscript that's ready for printing, and then the date, like, once it comes out, and it's out in the world. Um, and so, <laughs> you just have to be smart about saving the money that you do have and, and kind of using it wisely, because you don't see this huge lump sum of money all at once, like you think that you might see it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't get your full advance. Right. All and at once. I think another misconception too is that the advance that you get is enough to like fully live on, which maybe for some people it is, but for most, even like a lot of successful published writers that friends of mine, uh, it, that's not the case. You know, you're still doing your other work at the same time. Yeah, exactly. You still have to do the work that, that helps you pay your bills. Um, so like for me, it's like, I, I did do freelance pieces while I was writing the book. I don't suggest it. <laughs> um, don't get me wrong I, do, I don't suggest you doing that unless you have like a full on capacity to just write whatever whenever and know that it's going to be good um, I took on I took on a lot so let me be your um, cautionary tale when you're writing your first book and you sell it and you're in that process don't take on as much as I did don't feel like you have to because a lot of it was like I felt like I had to 
um, because even outside of money, I was just like, if I don't write these separate freelance things, people are going to forget about me. And then when the book comes out, they're not even going to want to buy it because they're going to be so upset that I didn't do these freelance pieces on the side. Um, but I think just have faith in the fact that people will, like I said, hopefully, fingers crossed, because we don't know yet until next year, but they'll be willing to wait for you to finish your book. Um, don't don't say yes to everything just because you feel like you have to be prolific for people to care because they will care. I think I hope. Yeah, I think that extends <laughs> so much beyond writing. Even I think it's a very relatable fear, the fear of being forgotten or, you know, oh, if I'm not posting on Instagram every day, or if I take this two week break, or if I take time to work on this thing or do whatever, I think there is this in this hyper connected, super fast content producing world that we live in. I do think that that's a fear. And I think oftentimes it's unfounded. The people who love your work are still going to love it. And I think would rather have high quality things less often than things produced like in frantic desperation because you know from a place of fear yeah absolutely that is such a perfect way of putting it because once I got toward the end of the writing process I was like if you would able to reach out and I'd be like thank you so much but I'm writing a book and like I need to finish it so if you could reach back out in x y and z that would be fantastic if not I completely understand um because I think if you if you uh, say no in a respect, like even if it's something that you really want to do, if you express interest but also say no because you know you can't do it at that moment, sometimes those opportunities will come back to you at a later date. Like that has absolutely happened to me um, beforehand. It's like being like, okay, I can't write this right now, but I would love to write it in a month. Please reach back out in a month. Mm-hmm. Please reach back out, you know, in a couple weeks, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's all about just the way that you approach saying no if you don't really want to do it don't express interest just be like oh no thank you this isn't the right fit for me but if you really do want to do it just say something like thank you so much for reaching out which is what i always you know start with thank you so much for reaching out i'm absolutely interested in this however i can't do it right now but i can do it at this later date i think it's always best when you can give people a specific date to reach back out and hope that they do but if they don't you just have to cut your losses and go yeah and that's, that's hard i'm I'm not going to say that that's easy to do. It is hard to get excited about something and then not have it come to fruition. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's just a part of life as creatives in general, not even just writing, but just life as a creative and, and person, a human being even, to to get your hopes up for something and not have it come to fruition. And then you start to worry about, is it the way that you said something? You, you start to like play it back in your head, like, is this something that... I did wrong, but I think it's just sometimes the chips fall wherever they're supposed to fall. And, and that's the thing that I'm learning and and I'm telling you, but I'm also telling it to myself. Like sometimes things don't happen when you want them to, but they'll happen when they're supposed to. Yeah. I thought about that a lot in the lead up to my, my, PCT hike and this idea like I one of the boundaries that I had to set for myself just in order to fit in like my work for this show and you know other work and hike prep and hike training and all those things I was like okay one of the things that I'm not going to do is be a guest on other people's podcasts in sort of like the two months leading up to it and so exactly what you said like those requests would come in and it would be you know because I love being guests on other podcasts I love it it's super fun for me and so that would be a hey I would love to do this here's the 
the situation. If you reach back out in November, like happy to get something on the schedule, which felt like really funny to be getting requests in May and to have to sort of punt it to November. But doing Mm -hmm. that had to be a hard line for me that I'm like, nope, there's only so many hours and I wouldn't be able to do a good job if I were to say yes to these other things, given the other commitments. So yeah, I like sort of the differentiation between saying no to things that actually aren't the right fit for you, saying yes to things that you can and do want to do right now, and then being willing to take that little bit of a risk and say not yet to sort of those in-between things. Exactly. Yes. That's a perfect way of saying what I said in a way that like, isn't as rambly as mine was. <laughs> like, it's like, sometimes you're like, I know what I'm saying and I'm saying it, but I'm just taking like an hour to say it. And like, you're like, okay, rein it in. And then you're just like, okay, I will. But let me just say this one last thing first. I love it. I love it. Um, so pivoting away from the book a little bit, I'd love to talk about the essay that you wrote for Roxanne Gay's Unruly Body Series, which, oh my gosh, I loved that whole series, by the way. Like that was incredible. Um, I would love for you to first tell me the story of how that opportunity came about for you to be included in that collection of stories, which I will definitely link to in the show notes. Oh, wonderful. I love that piece. Um, It happened because I was stressed out. And so I was like, I'm taking a staycation. So I booked um, like a, I booked like a three night, three night, four day stay in like my local hotel. And I was just chilling out. Like it's so bad because I did it during the week like the end of the week when I should have just did it on the weekend. And then, but anyway, that doesn't matter. So I booked this hotel staycation stay thing and I get an email from Roxanne and she's like, will you write this for me? Like, will you write something on unruly bodies, whatever, um, whatever comes to your mind that you can think about when you hear the, the phrase unruly bodies and, and write it for me. And I was like, absolutely. Like, uh, I would have said yes to whatever you asked me to do because I just love her so much. And essentially, I gave her my idea. She gave me the go-ahead to go with it. And then I typed it up. She edited it. And then, you know, it came out into the world. And it was a very quick process because no matter what she was going to ask me, odds are I was going to say yes. Um, so she could have been like, hey, can you write about ostriches? And I'd be like, I'll do some research and <laughs> and figure it out. But yes. Um, so for me, it was like it was like this email that at first I was like, this can't be real. Like she's not asking me to write for her because like, she knows how much I love her. Like everybody who's anyone like knows how much I love Roxanne Gay. Um, so just to be asked, like to be a part of such an amazing group of writers in that way. I think it was life-changing for me because I just never talk about something that, that um, helps you see the impact of the work that you're doing is that is to have somebody that you admire so much reach out to you and say, Hey, I want you to be one of 24 people to write for me um, on this pop-up magazine that I'm doing for medium. And I was, and I think that like I literally squealed for like an hour in the hotel room after I said yes, like, to her email. And, like, I said yes immediately. There was no sense of, like, waiting and being coy. And, yes. like, I was like, yes, absolutely, I'll do it. <laughs> now, she could have been like, I can't pay you. Well, that's fine. I'll do it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think that there's just some things that you're just like, this is a blessing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it. 
Yeah, I, I a, totally know that feeling of the people who it's like, oh, you want me to cut all my hair off and put it in the mail and send it to you? Okay, I don't know why you want that, but I'll do it. <laughs> like, right. You got it. You asked. You go. I don't know why that was my example, but all right. Um, <laughs> will you give a quick summary of what your piece uh, for that series is about? Well, um, that piece in particular is about how we all have unruly bodies, how there's no real body that's perfect and and I think for me I started it with telling the reader about how how much I hated my body and how I used to mark my body with marker and then again with blades because I was just so desperate to get to a part of my body that I that I liked um and so I essentially chronicalized that journey of me like you know cutting myself and harming myself and trying so hard to to find something that I love about my body to being on the other side of that. So I start the, I start the piece by saying like, this is the first time that I'm writing about my body from the other side. And the other side is joy and happiness. And I think it, it falls in line with what I'm trying to do with the book as well. It's just, I'm writing about my body from the first time, like as a, like from a place of love and not hatred. And so I kind of tell that, that story of what it was like to hate my body and, and, and talk about it from this place of being like, I love me. You know what I mean? I'm beautiful. And I think to get to that place and then to be able to write about it for somebody like Roxanne Gay meant the world to me. And so essentially, I say all this to say that I'm essentially writing about my body as it was from the other side. Like, So for me being happy in my body, so what it was like to just hate it so much that you would rather cut it open and, and try to find something on the inside that uh, further showed you something more than, than what was on the outside. And a lot of it was just me trying to cause myself pain because I felt like I deserved that pain. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's essentially what the piece is about, just me being on the other side of hating my body, but also trying to work through what that was like for all those years of my life. Uh-huh. Something that struck me and really stuck out for me in this piece, you said, I would wake up every day for two years and say four things I like about myself. And mm-hmm. I highlighted that because it seemed like such a specific um like a specific way to talk about the practical side of learning to like yourself. Like I think any time that whether it's about, you know, our bodies or about other things, that anything in the like self-love space can float kind of too high up, right? Or feel like, okay, that sounds nice, but what does that actually look like? How do I actually do that? Yes. And I really liked that you included that small example. Like I could imagine you actually, okay, like waking up every day for two years, whatever that was, in bed, in the bathroom mirror, right? Saying four things that you like about yourself. And I'm curious if there's anything else in sort of that realm of practical things of learning to get to the other side that you want to share that were helpful for you? Um, so yeah, first of all, I say the four things because four is my favorite number. Um, that, that was literally the thought behind it. Like say four things until you believe it. But I think it's also just trying to discover patience, um, which what does that look like? It's just you being like, like say you mess up on something and before you get ready to say, you know what, you're trash, you suck, Kia, for doing this thing wrong, you say to yourself, you know what, I messed up. This thing didn't go well and that's fine, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm a bad person. And so it's just kind of little reminders, even if you're not saying them out loud to yourself, that just because you mess up doesn't mean that you're a bad person. Um, and so for me, it's it's been saying the four things 
saying the reminders in my head, like, just because something goes bad doesn't mean that that's a reflection on who you are as an entire human being. And just kind of, a lot of it, like I said, for me, is about verbal affirmation. Because I think, for me, verbal affirmation is tangible. And so if we want things that, like, you're like, oh, just just love yourself. Like, it's not that easy. So for me, it's like, I have to verbally say it. Sometimes I'll write them down. You know, I'll just write down, this is what I have to do today. And this is how I'm going to do it. And if it doesn't go well, you know, maybe it'll go well tomorrow. You know what I mean? For me, it's like, so much of what I do now is like, if it doesn't go well today, I'm going to give myself the room to try again tomorrow. Or ask for help when I need it. Um, it's it's doing those physical things that have helped me get to the other side. It's like being willing to admit, hey, I need help. Hey, I need an extension. Hey, I need you to just sit here and not say anything, but just sit with me. I, I need to vent to you. I need to talk about what's going on um, with me here in this particular project. And, I, and I'm very lucky because I have people in my life who I can do that with. Um, so for me, it's not just about, you know taking bubble baths and stuff, it's, I don't want to say it's deeper than that, but I think it's more tangible than just a bubble bath. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's listening to music that feeds into, you know, like if I'm angry or if I'm sad or if I'm really, really happy, I think they just feed into that. Yeah. There's something else that you said in that piece that I wanted to ask you about. You said, I believe in the power of reclamation. Can you talk about that? What you mean by that? Um, I do. I really do. Like, that's my reclamation is my thing. I think when you reclaim your own space, so we spend so much time concerned about the amount of space that we take up within the world and, and who's who's keeping track of the space that we take up. But for me, it's like, I reclaim my space. I reclaim my body and and reclaim loving it because I came into this world hating it. So for me, reclamation is like, I reclaim the word cute because it has a, a very degrading meaning within the disability community. But I reclaim the word cute because I feel like I'm cute. Not like in a degrading way or infantilizing way, like... I just think that I'm cute and that's that on that. And I'm reclaiming that. But I'm also just reclaiming the space that I take up. And I think for me, reclaiming it means like no longer apologizing for these things that you thought you needed to apologize for or needed to change about yourself. So I'm reclaiming my big forehead and my, you know, crooked lips and my crooked smile and my tiny nose and my tiny ears. I'm reclaiming these things because they're mine and I'm tired of apologizing for them to the world, but also to myself. Um, I'm tired of, of beating myself up about things that I can't change because I think that I'm supposed to fit some sort of societal beauty standard. Like, I'm tired of, of wondering who who is noticing the amount of space that I take up when I enter public spaces. And I think it, it's very hard because I'm very much a person who cares what people think. Um, but for me, reclamation has just been instrumental in my journey to self-love because I'm just reclaiming all these things that I once hated as things that I now love and will not apologize for no matter how no matter who asks me to 
Mm-hmm. I think that's so beautifully said. I also hear echoes of what you were saying towards the beginning of the conversation about um, who you are and your identity as a writer, right? This idea of, and you didn't use the word reclaiming then, but that you can just be a writer, not, you know, only a disability writer, only this specific thing. And the, the, this, this sort of a theme that's coming out from what you're saying of being able to choose your identity for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think it's just, like you said, I think that you, you have the ability to to be who you want to be and not have to please other people. Is that, that sense of freedom, to me, is so beautiful. And I wish for everyone to have that, especially marginalized people in marginalized communities. You don't have to pigeonhole yourself to make your work matter. You don't have to constantly write about your own oppression and your own trauma and your own pain to be considered a writer. You're a real writer or a real creative when you create and when you write, no matter what it is, whether you want to write about the Jetsons or the Brady Bunch or what have you, to reclaim your voice from constantly having it to be about the trauma you've experienced or the hurt and pain that you um, have been you know, the victim of. I just think it's so important for people. I'm sorry, I'm just getting so excited because I really want people to understand that they don't have to be what people expect them to be in order for them to be worthy of living life. No, I mean, don't apologize. Everything that you're saying is incredibly powerful and meaningful. And I think, again, like there's just so many echoes in, in which I think this is applicable to to a lot of different folks in a lot of different ways that I think about this a lot with the sort of... um obsession or fetish that we have of like truth telling and authenticity and obviously like having a show called Real Talk Radio like I'm aware that I fit into that sort of genre I guess but this idea that you know owning your voice or whatever that it has to look like trauma sharing it can right like and I think making space for people to talk about their lived experiences especially the painful things that have happened to them is really crucial and necessary and also that our trauma or like you said, oppression or hard things that anyone has been through, that's like, we don't need that in order to be worthy. That doesn't make us meaningful, right? And that you don't have to continue to like, especially as an artist, like drag yourself through the mud of your own trauma in order to be accepted as like a worthy creative. I think that what you're saying is incredibly powerful. And what I often always say, too, is, like, if that's what you want to write about, write about it. Because, like I said, I've written about my own trauma and my own pain and my own hurt in freelance pieces, but also more more so in the book because I wanted to write about it. If you want to write about it, write about it. But don't feel like you have to yep. just because. I think there's a difference between you wanting to talk about something that hurt, which I've done before and I will continue to do. Yeah, same, totally. Uh, something yeah. that impacts your life. <laughs> Versus you feeling like you have to do it because that's what's going to get you where you need to be. And I want so badly for for young writers, especially in marginalized communities, to understand that you can write about whatever you want to write about. You don't have to constantly drudge up those feelings that are going to, you know, that you don't want to talk about or you don't want to write about just yet. Mm -hmm. To be somebody, to consider yourself a writer, all you have to do is write. And I think that you don't have to constantly you know, put yourself in harm's way mentally and emotionally just to consider yourself a writer. If you want to write about it, write about it. But if you don't, don't. Yeah, I love that. I know that that's so, it's so easy for me to say um, because I come from a place of having visibility and having enough clout to say, no, I don't want to write about that. Yes, I want to write about this. But I just, I really hope that 
that writers understand that they don't have to be who they are not just to consider themselves writers. Mm -hmm. They don't have to write about the things that they don't like just because they want to be considered writers. Write about what you want. You'll find an audience. Someone is always going to be willing to want to read whatever it is that you write or hear, or hear what you have to say about something. Uh, because you br what you bring to it, no one else has. There's always something so special about each particular person as creatives that we can bring to the table that nobody else has. And that's why people flock to you, because you have something, a story or stories, rather, worth telling. Yeah, that this idea that there will always be someone who wants the art that you're making, <laughs> the thing that popped mm -hmm. into my head was the period of my life as an adult, let me just say that, where I was so obsessed with the Twilight series that I purchased and read, I think it was seven different books of critical essays about Twilight, which you wouldn't even think that there would be that many people that are like writing essays about Twilight, but like <laughs> that's a niche thing. And I will tell you, I bought them all. So... <laughs> Right. No, listen, I used to love I used to love the Twilight series. Like I was like a stan. I read all the books in like a week. And I, I, I own all the movies still to this day. Like I own them all and I and I just I think that you I it's I hate the line, but it's like if you build it they will come. Yeah. But like if you build it, they will come. Like you just have to do it first. Mm -hmm. And somebody's gonna be like, Yep, that's my jam. That's, yeah. that's, stuff. that's the good stuff. <laughs> and that's the stuff that people are going to wind up being obsessed with. Yeah, because they can really dig into it. Totally. Um, so moving away from writing a little bit, uh, you said something on Twitter recently that I would love to hear more about. You said, I wish that parents weren't so skittish with their kids when it comes to disabilities. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Um, so it's funny because people took that in a myriad of ways. But for me, it meant that like, so often when I'm in public spaces, adults stare at me with their mouths wide open like they've never seen anybody limp before. But I notice that those same adults often shush their kids away from me. Like I'm some sort of like creature that they need to be aware of and stay away from because I'm dangerous. But I think so often when you teach kids that as their first um, experience with disability is like shushing them away and not letting them look and or, you know, letting them see disability, then they become adults who believe in ableist ideas and, and are actually very harmful to disabled people, whether they intend to be or not. Because when they were younger, they had that same experience with a disabled person where their parent was like, no, look away, don't look at them. They're, you know, you know, don't, and, and, it, and it might be because they don't want to stare or whatever, but it's like, when you do that, you're telling your kid that disability is dangerous and wrong and you shouldn't look at it because it's, you should look away because it's just too gross to look at. It's too hard to see. And I think when we're doing that, we're teaching children that like disability is wrong and bad and that's not what we should be doing. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a more nuanced conversation I think we need to have because it's hard being a, especially being a physically disabled person in public spaces, because again, I find that adults literally cannot take their eyes off me. And it's like, yeah, my outfits are cute, but like, I know that that's not why you're looking at me. Um, I know that you're looking at me because you see my hand and my leg and you cannot, like, it's not even that they tried to hide it. So it's like, 
there's complete opposite ends of the spectrum. You tell your kids to look away, but you can't stop staring at me. And so for me, it's like, I'd rather kids come and ask me questions than to look at disability as a thing to fear because they were told when they, you know, they were told not to look at me and they were told to, you know, step away. And like, I had one mom once, I was in the mall and she like had her kid and we were walking outside. And then when she realized that I was limping, she like put her kid on the other side of her, like something was going to happen to the kid because I was limping, limping alongside of them. And I think that that, this idea that disability is this thing that people need to fear they're passing it on to their children while also being disrespectful enough to just like stare at me with their mouths wide open. So it's a double-edged sword really, but I just hope that kids can get to a place where it's like, we start teaching children rather that like disabilities and the thing that they need to fear or look away from or hide away from, or, um, you know, I guess just, not be around it's it's okay to question it and to ask questions but also understand that like if a disabled person doesn't want to answer your questions that doesn't mean that you don't treat us because we don't want to answer your questions like trash treat us like the human beings that we are whether we answer your questions or not Mm -hmm. yeah and i agree with what you said that it's a more nuanced thing right because it's not like you're saying okay here's like steps one to three of how people should behave or how they should parent their children or whatever but it's just everything that you just said the fact that it is nuanced it is complicated it is messy there isn't necessarily a right answer but that the way that most folks are behaving or socializing their kids even with you know i think well-intentioned things like oh it's rude to stare right i think people say that to kids a lot about about different like lots of different things sort of in that i feel like is some kind of erasure of people's differences and kids are just inherently curious and I think that like you said encouraging that whether or not you wind up wanting to answer their questions it's still like not encouraging kids to like look away there's something in that that feels necessary in what you're saying exactly um for me it's like as soon as you said that I was like yes because there's a fine line between um staring and also just educating your kids about what it's like for people to look different than they are look different than you and I think that that's that's the medium that I think people need to find it's like okay so look at this is a person you're looking at them they're disabled here's what disability is um and here why here's why there's nothing wrong with that okay let's move on with our day you know I think the owner shouldn't always be on disabled people to answer questions but it should be that you should be able to figure out a way to tell your kids about disabilities without making it seem like it's this thing that they can't talk about or can't think about or can't look at. Have them look at us for a second or whatever, and then you do the work of explaining to them what a disability is and also explaining to them that these people with disabilities are not bad people. They're not scary people. They're just people. We're just people. Um, And it is a nuanced conversation that I couldn't have on Twitter because that's not the place for nuanced conversations right, often. Right. But, right? Like, it's not the place for it often, but I think that it's a conversation that needs to be had. People need to understand that there's, there's work that they have to do at home before they enter public spaces where they might see somebody who's different than them. If they don't know how to handle it, that's a personal problem. You need to figure out a way to teach your kids so that they don't become as uninformed as, as you might be. Yeah, I think that that's a really excellent takeaway. This idea that I, I think that there's so much 
fear around saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing or, you know, s- about, you know, someone who has a lived experience that's different than yours and you don't know how to, and like you said, okay, we'll learn some stuff, right? Like if, and I mean, obviously I don't have kids, so I can't, whatever, but what I'm hearing come out of what you're saying is like, well, if you're asked a question but that you don't know an answer to, like, okay, we'll do the work, right? Like learn about stuff. And <laughs> it sounds like really stupid as I'm saying that out loud, but yeah, that there is like that, that labor isn't yours to do, Right. Like that it's yeah. each individual person, like, I don't know, educate yourself. Exactly. Cause it's like people get so, people get so weird about not knowing something right away that they feel like they either have to lie and say they know, or just act like, or just, I don't know, suffer in the fact that they don't know. Like admitting that you don't know something is so much fun because oh, then totally. you get to learn about it. <laughs> yes. Then you get to learn about it. You get to to discover new things and like for me that's so important especially on online spaces like I used to be so quick to be like oh my god I know what you're talking about like no I don't and now I can admit that to you freely like I don't know what that is let me go look it up let me go look and see what Google has to say what you know what people are saying about this thing let me go do the 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 work of learning about something before I just assume that I know everything that there is to know about everything that there is to know about Mm mm-hmm yeah, of, of course we don't know everything, <laughs> obviously. Right. Um, so at the time of this recording, we're like halfway through the year, and I would love to ask you some sort of, uh, I don't know, like mid-year review type questions, because that's very much on my mind. So I know that we've talked about the book, which I'm sure feels like a big accomplishment, the first draft for you. But other than that, what's something so far in 2018 that you feel proud of? Um, definitely writing Unruly Bodies and then being edited by Roxanne Gay. Um, starting a kind of weekly, bi-weekly thing with Helpers Bazaar where I write about different topics that mean something to me. Um, going on a cruise, which I went on in April, or May, excuse me, I went on in May. Um, we went to Half Moon Cay, the Bahamas, and Nassau, um, no, we went to Nassau, Half Moon Cay, and Grand Turk. Excuse me, the Nassau and the Bahamas are the same thing. It's fine. Um, and then also, I just bought some really cute clothes this year. And I, I think I bought a really cute suitcase. But also, just, <laughs> just like professionally, it's just being able to write and being able to to impact people in the way that I have. Like I, I think every time that I receive a sweet email um, from somebody who read my work like I, I cry because it's just people are so kind and so generous and they care so much and I think that it, it, it always throws me off that people care so much about something that I'm doing um so for me just halfway through the year the best things about it have been writing for Roxanne buying cute things writing for Harper's Bazaar and just receiving feedback um from people, especially the positive stuff, because let's be real, the positive stuff really feels good. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, I one of the th- and this, this is something that I've been doing for years and years, basically, for as long as I've been essentially like sharing personal stories online in some capacity, I have a folder in my Gmail that I uh, call warm fuzzies. And anytime I get an email like that, I tag it into it. And I make it a regular practice on days when I'm feeling like super self doubty, or, you know, the inner voice is like, everything you create is shit, this is never gonna, you know, whatever that kind of like downward spiral is that I will go into that folder and just randomly read nice emails that I have gotten from people about my work. And it's, I highly recommend that anyone who creates right. this kind of work do, because it's, inc- it's incredible to be reminded of that. 
It really is. I should do that. I'm, I should steal that. Um, Take it. Yeah. It is. It's so, because you're just like, okay. Because sometimes people are finding things from like 2015 and 2016, like right before. Because 2016, the end of the year was when I finally started feeling good about myself. But people have found essays and stuff where I'm just like, I don't like myself and that's fine. I don't have to like myself. Like don't, you know what I mean? Like just, and writing about what it's like to live in my body versus the things that I'm writing today. Um, and so they're like, I've just been tracking your growth for a year. Like I, somebody had mentioned you to me and, and, um, it's just been, it's nice to know that people give a damn. I think that that's what's important. Like mm-hmm. for me, I give a damn about so many things, you know, not just about writing and writers, but I give a damn about TV shows. Like Killing Eve is amazing. Like I, I have never loved, you know, no way. Orphan Black. So I never thought that I could love another BBC America show the way that I love Orphan Black. But Killing Eve, good Lord. Like, they did what they had to do. They did what needed to be done. And to do it in eight episodes, I just... But anyway, back to my point. It's just, oh, I love the show so much. Like, the show follows me on Twitter, and I'm just like, I love you so much. Please, <laughs> never change. Like, I literally, like, I tweet them, like... I don't know. It's just wild. I'm the biggest fan of that TV show. But for me, it's just like, just to know that people give a damn about the same things that you give a damn about and the things that you're creating, they care about. Um, it makes me emotional. And yeah. I just, I can't believe it. Because mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm just, you know, a black disabled woman from a town that nobody knows the name of. And I'm just trying my best. And, and for people to care like that, to care enough took time out of their day to send me a sweet email about a piece that I wrote it just it never gets old you never get sick of finding out that people care about you yeah that that never stops feeling amazing um what's something so far in the first half of the year that's felt challenging for you um visibility visibility um because I don't have as much visibility as like a ton of people, but I have more than, than, than a lot of other writers. And so with visibility for me has come people who just think they know everything that there is to know about me and they make assumptions about things that aren't true. And, and it's even like people who are well-meaning, I find. Um, I made a tweet not too long ago about how I feel lonely and how it's hard when you finally like yourself well, love yourself. When you finally love yourself, to be lonely in a romantic way. Because before, when I didn't like myself, I was like, oh, well, it makes sense that I'm single. Because who would love me? But now it's like, I love me, so where's everybody else? Mm-hmm. And somebody's like, oh, well, you just have to learn to love yourself. And I'm like, did you not Did you not read the first half of the tweet? You know what I mean? Like, And I think it's also that people, so it's like well-intentioned people. Like, this person was so sweet and kind and they realized like what they said why they said what they said and how it was like not helping at all um but i find too that like even trolls and like people who just want to find reasons not to like me will do whatever they can to and so they'll just comment on my most random tweets i'll be like oh the sun is shining they're like fuck you and the sun and i'm like all right Yeah, and that that escalates the more visible you get, right? That it's like there's really great things that come with visibility and also responsibility and also just like bullshit sometimes. 
Exactly. And that's why it's a complicated thing because I, I do, I'm not going to lie and say I don't, I want my career to stall and stop. No, I don't. I want it to keep going. And if that's, you know, the price I have to pay for it, fine, I'll pay for it. But I just think that's what's been hard for me a lot this year is just the, the amount of people who don't like me just because they don't want to. Mm-hmm. Or the amount of people who, who respond to my tweets and stuff. Like, I'm ready and willing for an argument. Like, oh, I just wanted, I wanted to just have a debate conversation with you about this. Okay, that's what you want. But that's not what I want. I'm not going to spend my day defending my humanity to people who, won't, who aren't going to see it anyway. Um, and so that's, that's been a tough thing about for me this year. Um, but also just sitting down and sitting in the, the things that are happening for me, like sitting in the joys and like the excitement has been hard. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I've been, I've conditioned myself to just not do that. And so for this year in particular, I was just like, okay, I'm going to sit in my joy and sit in my um, happiness and not feel guilty about it. But that's been a challenging thing for me. It's just actually not feeling guilty after I do it. Um, so yeah, visibility and that, are my biggest things but like I said they both come with they both equally come with like positives sure yeah I mean and I think that that's a really honest answer this idea that it is challenging sometimes to let yourself be happy yeah it is because especially in these times in particular because we are living in in times where under like this presidential administration that is just shitting on everything and being extra racist and extra homophobic, extra transphobic and extra terrible. And so for me in particular to have so many good things happening, I feel guilty about it. But I also prefer that like, those are the things that are going to keep me going and hopefully they'll help somebody else keep going as well. I mean, yeah. And also, though, to reiterate your own point from earlier about us being complicated, you know, humans who can feel multiple things at the same time, like you can celebrate and be really joyful about the things that are really going well, the things that you've worked for, all of the things that you shared, and also feel like outrage about other things and like work towards betterment of other things, right? That it's like both are possible. And that's something that makes makes me crazy when it's like, oh, you know, how could you be happy about this when like that other thing over there is like so terrible? It's like, well, yeah, but if you only pay attention to that, then I mean, that's not does not feel like a good way to live either. Exactly. I get so many of those tweets and emails like, how dare you be happy? Like, psh, my happiness is resistance. My living every day with a smile on my face is resistance. I can still be sad and upset and hurt and still smile. And I think that that's it's necessary that we are that way, because if we don't let joy in. How are we going to get through all of this in one piece? Mm, Yeah, I think that's a great place to start to wrap up. And as you might remember from last time, we end these episodes with seven kind of random rapid fiery questions. If you're down to answer seven questions that everyone else this season will also be answering these same questions. I'm absolutely down. I love a good good. Yes, I'm ready. I love a good rapid fire question. Let's go. What's one activity that you can always count on to make you feel good? Writing. Let's fast forward five years and you're talking to your future self or rather your future self is talking to your right now self. What advice does this future self give you for your life right now? For my life right now, to keep going, try 
to worry less about what people think and to stay on path of your purpose. Mm. You know, this, this me already knows what my purpose is, but to keep going in that direction and not let the, the thoughts of people who don't matter in the grand scheme of things keep you from that path. Oh, yeah, I love that. Who is one of your favorite people to follow on social media? Oh, my God, there's so many. Can I have multiples? You can have multiple, um, yes. yes. Well, obviously, Roxanne Gay, like, it is what it is, we know. Um, but I really also love the Killing Eve social media media manager. Um, Danielle Sepulveres is amazing. She does, I just love her. She's my fave. And she does a lot of fantastic writing. And um, she's a she's like stand-in woman for, like, the do's and... Um, diet land and we just love her over here um brandon taylor is amazing to follow on social media he's just hilarious and he's so talented and like just whip smart and he has fantastic taste in sweaters hardwood floors and men and um hmm, who else do i just love following uh sophia bush is fantastic to follow across social media. She's, she uses her platform to um, educate people. Like she, she understands the, uh, she understands the importance of saying something that means something when you have a platform that, that is that big. Um, and so I really like following her, particularly on Instagram. Um, she just, she rarely uses Twitter, which is funny because that's where we're like mutuals on, which I died about her following me. Oh my God. <laughs> that was one of the best things that happened to me in 2018. I forgot. That was it. Oh God, I love her so much. Um, but she's just, she's brilliant at Instagram. Like just brilliant. Um, but yeah, follow those people uh, for sure. Yeah, I'm on it. I love it. That's so good. And they're just great. What's one thing that helps you when you're feeling really overwhelmed or stressed? Music, particularly Paramore and Demi Lovato. Like, I know I've mentioned them before because I really am like, I tell my friends, I'm a verified Demi Lovato and Paramore stan account. Like, I'm verified, but like, that's all I care about. If there's anything positive that people are saying about either of them, I'm retweeting it and then talking about it for the next six weeks where like I just am such a super fan and their music in particular, but music in general as well, um, gets me through the toughest spots. One of my favorite things about you is how much of an unapologetic fangirl you are about things. Cause I'm the same way. And I just like it, like make, even if the things that you love aren't necessarily things that I love, I find myself really uplifted by other people who aren't afraid to lean into their obsessions and like really fan out about stuff. And so I don't know. I just love, I love hearing you talk about that. I'm so glad because I literally can't even stop myself. And I think that there's something so beautiful about seeing somebody be so passionate about something, whether it's a TV show or a movie or a thing. Like, you're like, yes, because you love it so much. I, even if I don't like it, like you said, I feel that. And that's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's funny. funny. That's like how I feel about like the guests on this show. Sometimes I like literally have to lay on the floor and like force myself to breathe before I get on these calls. And I'm like, Oh my God, these people are so amazing. I can't believe that I get to talk to them. And I know that that comes out. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, maybe it seems a little dorky, but I don't care. Like you're awesome. Right. Exactly. You have to do what makes you happy. Like. Totally. Um, how do you typically spend the last hour of your day, the hour before you go to sleep? Okay. So this is funny. I spend the hour before I go to sleep laying in bed, playing wordscapes. Now, Wordscapes is 
Or no, wait. Well, I play both Wordscapes and Homescapes. So, like, I switch. Wordscapes is just you get uh, letters. So, and then you just put the letters together to make them words. Right? And then Homescapes is you helping this guy, this, like, animated character person. And he's helping his parents, like, renovate his house. It's like Gardenscapes. He's, re- he's helping his parents renovate their house so that they don't sell it. And you have to play these games where you just match these colors and get them, like, sticky <laughs> stuff. And I literally will spend hours before, I'm, before I go to bed playing both Wordscapes and Homescapes. Like, I'm obsessed. And, like, I don't, I don't, this is not an ad or anything. I just read. <laughs> like, <laughs> because my friends would be like, what are you doing? I'm like, I can't, I'm playing Homescapes. And they like, well, can, like, can we, um, you know, can I call you? I'm like, I'm playing Homescapes. Like, <laughs> like, you can call me when my five lives are up. Because that's like, they give you five lives, right? And so you, once you use those five lives, you got to wait, like, so twenty five every twenty five minutes you get a new life. So you have to wait. So I'm like, okay, when my five like when my five lives are up, I'll call you back. <laughs> and then we have twenty five minutes to talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like so like that's what I do the hour if I go to bed. It's literally open my phone and play either wordscapes or homescapes. Oh my god, you're my favorite. Um the next question is about books. Um I know we did this last time too, but if anything else comes to mind, which two or three books of any genre, any type of book would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Um I reread, I think I said this last time, but I reread uh Dear Mr. Henshaw by Beverly Cleary a lot. Um I reread it at least once a year and I you know, obviously I love Roxanne Gay's books. Hello. I mean, who <laughs> who doesn't? But I also, I think in terms of books, not that I reread, but books that I'm excited about, there's um, The Wedding Date and The Proposal by Jasmine, I can never pronounce her last name. It's Gullery. I'll send you. I, yeah, I, I know what book you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited to read those books. I'm also super excited for Nicole Chung's um, book, I'm blanking on the title, but I'll I'll get it to you. And I'm really excited to read that. So a lot of it, a lot of what I'm really excited to read is essay collections that I did not allow myself to read while I was writing the essay collection because I didn't want it to be influenced. So hers, Poor Ochistas, um, hers is called Sick, and I'm just so excited to read it. I think it's going to be good. Abby Norman's book, um, which came out a while ago, which I'm still late in reading in the same way that I am with The Wedding Day. Um, I'm really excited to read those books. So it's a lot of me catching up on um, essay collections that I refused to read until I was done with the first half of my book so that they didn't influence the way that I wrote what I was writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading Porochista's book as well. So I'm, I'm definitely going to put links to these things in the show notes. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Um. Give yourselves the room to experience joy. Absolutely. Give yourself to the room to be happy and to smile and to laugh without filter and to, to find things that make you feel something good, especially in these times when we're constantly worried about whether or not we're going to have our rights taken from us, especially as marginalized people. Um, let yourself find, carry, and keep joy. Uh, yeah. Because you need it. We all need it right now. And 
I think we talk so much about like getting to work and doing the work and and letting that work be the thing that you focus on. And it is the thing. You know, you should be doing the work, but you should also be taking time to breathe and find things that make you feel good in the process. So well said. So what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? What's your current favorite way to connect with new folks? Um, You can reach me at Kia, K-E-A-H underscore Maria, M-A-R-I-A on both Twitter and Instagram. I'm prolific on both, but mostly on Instagram. It's Instagram stories. So just reply to those and I'll, (laughs) and I'll see you there. And then Twitter same thing. Just reach out to me, text, or you know, just message me. Don't be afraid to say hi. Um, I'm always down with people. Just saying, hey, I'm new here from X, Y, and Z thing. Just wanted to let you know. Like I love that stuff. And also, you can um, read my work on my website, which I still need to update. But you can just read what, it, what is there now at Kia Brown, K E A H B R O W N dot Weebly, W E E B L Y dot com. And also, I have a Facebook page now. It's just Kia Brown. And I think I'm wearing like a white shirt in the one in my professional Facebook page. So you can find that and I'll post my stuff. Like I post the same stuff that you might see like on Twitter, like in terms of work that I'm doing there. Fabulous. I will put links to all of that in the show notes um, for all the listeners. Yeah, don't hesitate to reach out to Kia. She, yeah, she just said she wants you to reach out. Um, Kia, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was so great to be back. I love these conversations. We always have so much fun. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music, which is awesome, by the way, and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Lori. Hi, Lori. Hello. You ready to answer five random questions and tell me all about yourself? Yep. What are you totally obsessed with right now? Uh, Being pregnant and (laughs) getting ready to welcome a new tiny human into the world. That's so exciting. It's your first, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's my first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah. What's something that feels frustrating for you right now? Like one thing or area of your life that you're finding challenging? Oh, hmm. I think um, just getting a, a nesting, <laughs> getting the house to a place that doesn't feel like things keep exploding first, you know, like it, we're just rearranging and painting and we just had a baby shower over the weekend. And so things are getting a little more disorganized first before I think they'll settle down. So um mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that feels overwhelming. If anything were possible, what's one of your big dreams or fantasies? Whoa, if anything were possible. Um, I think that I would relocate the place that I live and just sort of like cut out the footprint of the place and everything that happens here at this point at the place I work, it's a retreat and conference center. 
and I would relocate it to where my family is um, in Wisconsin, but it would not feel like Wisconsin. It would feel like Southern California. So basically you want your current (laughs) life, but also to be closer to your family. (laughs) Exactly. All right. I like it. I like it. Um, What's one thing that you would love to do between now and the end of the year? Oh, um, hmm. wow. I mean, I'm so, I'm really focused on this baby. (laughs) Um, so I think it's a lot and I'll be taking maternity leave. Um, and so I kind of talk about in the fall going on tour with the baby and my husband and visiting friends and family, um, that don't live where we live so that everyone can meet. I love it. It's like book tour, but baby tour. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's such a good, that's such fun wording. <laughs> Going on baby tour. Um, the last question, what's one specific thing that you wish that people were more open and honest about? Um, I think when, so, you know, when someone just asks like, how are you? How's your day going? Um, to be more honest about that in the moment. Because if I'm asking, I actually care and I want to know. And so when people say like, oh, I'm fine, it's obviously that it's obvious that you're not fine. (laughs) And I'm often curious what's underneath that. Yeah, I've been thinking about that too. Or even like, let's say that is honest and you really are fine. I still want more context. Like, tell me something about your day, right? So maybe the like, how are you isn't even the right question, right? It's like, tell me, what'd you do today? Or, you know, like I've been thinking about that too, that if I want better answers, that it's up to me to ask better questions. Um, Yeah. yeah, So that's, that's a great answer. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible. Since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season for which I'm very grateful. And Mm -hmm. I would love for you to share two things. First of all, why you decided to support the show. And then second, what you love most about being in our little community. Yeah, uh, I remember when you sort of switched over to this model and you were talking about how the way that you're, that you spend your money is really powerful. And, um, and I started thinking about that a lot and the way that I spend my money and thinking of it as energy and sort of this, um, this way that my values sort of like, shine through you know and that's just something that I really want I wanted to support and um the content is really awesome and it feels different than a lot of other things that I consume like podcasts or books or magazines things like that and this is totally worth it because it's something I really believe in I love that that makes me so happy to hear that have you had a favorite thing since you joined I think it's the, um, well, it's just sometimes I save up the seasons a little bit. And so then I listen to them all in a row. I think it's just the content and the guests and, um, yeah, just listening, especially the episodes where, um, I don't feel, uh, like a, like a personal connection to the topic before the episode starts. And then halfway through the episode, I'm totally engrossed in whatever is being talked about being surprised, I think 
Yeah. yeah, I can't tell you how many times I get that feedback when someone's like, well, I listened to this one last because I didn't really think I was going to connect with it. And then it wound up being my favorite one. And I'm like, yeah, that's because you're open minded and awesome. So that always <laughs> makes me happy. Um, so a last thing, can you share where you live and maybe a social media link or something if folks want to reach out? I live in Southern California in a tiny mountain town called Julian. Um, it's about an hour and 15 minutes northeast of San Diego. And I totally don't participate in social media. There so you go. Look at that. I can't do that. Yeah, but that's such a good answer. <laughs> I like that. That makes me want to ask you more questions, but I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. Honestly, I can't tell you how much that support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Perhaps we can even record a future outro together like this one. That would be a lot of fun. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together. 